Well, good morning. Uh, so as I mentioned, uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 7. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 7 and 8 this morning. Um, if you've been hoping in Zechariah that at some point you can come up for air and breathe amidst all of the visions that can be a little bit difficult to um, understand or see, this is going to be a section that is much more clear and straightforward. So the title of this lesson is Restoring True Religion. And I think what we see in this section are principles that we see uh, spoken of also in the New Testament. Think about James chapter 1. It says, if someone does not bridle their own tongue, they deceive their own heart, and their religion is useless. And pure and undefiled religion is to keep, uh, is to visit orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Um, and so in Zechariah 7-8, we'll see applications very similar to that. Um, just that in terms of getting us back into the context of the letter, remember that Zechariah and Haggai were two prophets who actually worked together. Haggai is a book of the Bible that is immediately before Zechariah, and they were in the same circumstances, the same time, and their message was very similar. Haggai is only two chapters, so his message is much more direct, whereas Zechariah is 14 chapters. But their goal really is the same. In Zechariah chapter 8, verse 9, it says, Let your hands be strong that the temple might be built. We'll see that verse this morning. And the reason why these prophets were sent in the first place is because God had punished and scattered his people among the nations uh, not long before the lives of these prophets and the people who were building the temple in these days. Um, God had begun bringing them back, though, because they had repented of their sins. And so he was bringing them back, not just to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, but to rebuild the temple as a beacon of its proper purpose, a beacon of God's love for his people, a beacon of God's power to restore people's lives from ruin, a beacon of God's compassion for the lowly and the downcast and to exalt them in unity in his presence. Now, they did not have a king or any military power, though, and they would not have a king as they once had them uh, for the rest of their duration leading up to the time of Christ. Herod was a king in the time of Jesus, but not in the kind of uh, quality that David and his descendants were. Their territory was diminished. It would never be fully restored physically. The temple did not look as glorious. Remember, Solomon had nearly infinite resources. And at this point in time, they had great resources, but it's not nearly the quality or quantity as what Solomon had. And not only this, but their work was greatly opposed. And so there's a greater demand for encouragement. There's a greater demand for God to equip the people. There's a greater demand for God to be involved in the work. There's a greater demand for God to motivate them and make promises and reassure them and comfort them. And so God's promise is that through their work and, and the littleness of all of its appearance and, and the obstacles that are in front of them, God is going to fulfill every promise he ever made to the people through their work and in their work. And I've put a gigantic arrow um, this time to try to convey that we're into the second half of the book now. The first half is about removing all of the obstacles that were in front of them in the work. Whereas now in 7 through 14, the emphasis is going to be on giving power and peace. Now, the emphasis in chapter 7 and 8, though, is going to be very similar to chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the beginning of the book, the emphasis was on renewing repentance. And we're going to see that's exactly the same emphasis in chapter 7 and 8, with many of the same promises. 
So in chapter 1, verse 14, God followed the initial introduction by saying he was exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem to inhabit it once again. And in chapter 8, verse 2, God is going to say the same thing again. He is exceedingly jealous to inhabit Jerusalem again. So we'll see that in the reading. I want to start in chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, is our, our first section of study this morning. And I'm going to start by reading just verses 1 through 3. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Again, to set a little bit of the scene here in the context. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. And you notice the, the title for this section of the lesson, Religion Without Reform is Worthless. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the town of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regemelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belonged to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? So just to kind of get a feel for what's going on here. In, uh, in Ezra, it mentions that the temple would be completed in the sixth year of Darius. And notice in verse 1, this is the fourth year of Darius. So the temple would be completed within two years from the time of this interaction. This is about two years after the time frame of chapters 1 through 6. So just kind of feel the passing of time a little bit. That after chapter 6, it's a number of years now between what seemed to have been said before now and then this interaction here. And in total, it's been about 18 years that the temple has been worked on on and off. So, I mean, this is a very long time that all of this work has now been happening. They aren't necessarily newly into Jerusalem or just building a temple. This is pretty far now into all of this work. So, Jews from Bethel, and this is about 10 miles north of Jerusalem, kind of implies that it's not just the city of Jerusalem itself, but some of the cities that outlied the area surrounding Jerusalem are being inhabited. And these Jews from Bethel, they wanted to know if they should continue a fast, and that would have been a period for abstaining from food and remembering something. Well, in the fifth month, they were remembering that Jerusalem had been sieged and destroyed. The fifth month in Jeremiah chapter 52, verses 12 and 13, the fifth month is the time when the city of Jerusalem and its temple were burned to the ground and destroyed completely. Jerusalem was broken into on the fourth month. Gadaliah, someone appointed uh, to be in charge of the remaining Jews in Jerusalem at that time, he was murdered in the seventh month. And then on the tenth month as well, uh, there was uh, the beginning of, of the siege of Jerusalem. So, what we'll see in chapter 8 is 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th month uh, fasts. But the, the main fast that's brought up here is the 5th month. That's the month when the city and the temple were actually burned to the ground. So with that, their question is, should we continue this fast that we've been doing now to remember that Jerusalem was destroyed? Let's see God's response up to verse 7. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and drink, do you not eat and drink for you, or do you not eat for yourselves and do you not drink for yourselves? Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with its cities around it and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? 
So if you remember from last week in Zechariah 4, we mentioned that perspective motivates participation. And participation leads to greater perspective. It's not that they had stopped working on the temple here. God's not rebuking them for doing necessarily anything wrong in the work of the temple. The work was going on as it needed to, and it was going to continue on until the temple would be completed. And so things were happening in a positive way. And what God was doing is he was helping to only further clarify what the purpose of everything really was and what direction the people needed to be focused on. So God's answer is not what they expected. Chapter 7 and 8 is really one long discourse, but God never answers yes or no to their question. It's really like, that really is not what I'm interested in. This whole fasting that you've been doing, you notice in verse 5, God says, this has really nothing to do with me at all. And so God is not going to answer yes or no, but he's going to say some things that sound like a rebuke, but it's still a very good interaction. It's good that they came to God about this. It's good that they wanted to ask if they should continue it. It gave opportunity for God to give clarity. And so this was a very good interaction. And I don't think God is displeased with the interaction. I think God is glad to be able to give the clarity that he gives here. But there's some things that they need to understand now that they've come to him about this. For one, notice in verse 5, God was not just responding to the people sent. This was a fast that it seemed like literally everybody was practicing. And so God's response is not just giving them a response, but giving clarity to the nation at large, to those who are back within Judah. And in verse, uh, verse 5 and 6, God mentions that the fasting of food and remembering the destruction of Jerusalem really is never what he was talking about through the former prophets. So why wasn't this valuable to God? For one, God had never been focused on their eating habits. I know that might sound simple and silly, but it's actually a very important point. What they were doing would have felt extremely reverent. In fact, it would have looked very reverent. But the issue that God had was not the city of Jerusalem itself. It was the sins of the people who were within it. Go to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is the first prophetic book that we have in our Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 1, 16 and 17. You know, in verse uh, 6 and 7, rather primarily verse 7 of Zechariah 7, God mentions that he had been saying all along through the prophets that his desire was not that they change their eating habits, but that they change their habits of sin to righteousness. God had not been focused on their eating, but their sin. Isaiah chapter 1, 16 and 17. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead the widow. And in verse 9, we'll see him reinforce these same old commands as what he's really seeking with the people. But there's a need for this clarity because they were practicing something that was reinforcing the wrong perspective. Uh, turning your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 15. This really isn't an issue that only existed within the people who were living during the time of Zechariah. I think this really reinforces a much broader point that it's 
terrifying how easy it is to miss the point and to miss it completely. How easy it is to hear what God has been saying, to be deeply involved in what God is even doing, but to still completely miss the point. The people from Bethel were not people who were completely disassociated from what God was doing. These were people who were involved and they were a part of what God was doing, but their practice had completely missed the point. In Matthew chapter 15, the context of these statements, Jesus is rebuking the Jews and the Pharisees, the leadership, for practicing things that he says in verse 8, fulfill a prophecy again from Isaiah. says in verse 7, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then in verse 15 through 20, Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And that is where he said, uh, it is not what enters a man that defiles him, but that what comes out of a man. So in verse 16, Jesus answered, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. And again, you know, you can look at the Pharisees and their religious practice of washing hands before they eat and kind of think about how silly that is. But remember, Peter himself, when Jesus would constantly talk about how he would die in Jerusalem and be betrayed and rise from the dead on the third day, Peter would take Jesus aside and say, Lord, God forbid that this would happen to you. And Peter, again, had missed the point completely. Matthew chapter 7 is another example of this. When Jesus famously spoke of those who say, Lord, Lord, but... They had done while, while they had done many miracles, while they had prophesied in his name, while they had done many mighty deeds in his name, Jesus would tell them on the judgment, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So we need to learn to focus ourselves personally where Jesus focused himself and where he focused his teaching. Because the issue is what we see in the New Testament letters as well, throughout the thread of the history of God working with his people, is we are always prone to missing the point. We are always prone from excusing ourselves from God's work in the intimacy and the power that he's calling for and instead compromising his will for our own substitutes. And so we need to focus ourselves personally where God focuses himself and focus the teaching of Jesus. The idea is if we practice what we feel is pious or reverent, But it is not with the focus that God commands. If it's not in the direction that his word intimately points us within, our religion is worthless. So verses 8 through 14. True religion is rooted in true reform. Their fasting, although it felt very reverent, it would have felt very pious, it would have been a very emotional thing. They're remembering the destruction of Jerusalem and it seems like such a good thing. But it simply was not the reform that God was calling for or seeking with his people. Let's look at verses 8 through 14. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus 
has the Lord of hosts said. Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stumbered shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. And just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. Thus, the land is desolated behind them so that no one went back and forth for they made the pleasant land desolate. So what has God been seeking all along? And I think we see this with the teaching of John the Baptist. We see it in the greater context of Jesus' teaching throughout his life and ministry. We see it through the New Testament epistles. And we see it threaded through the Old Testament as well, that God has always been seeking, not grandiose events. God has always been seeking the quiet, continuous, and complete yielding of the heart. The quiet, continuous, and complete yielding of the heart. Another way that Paul the Apostle said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, speaking of God's will not just being these visible events of grand reverence, he said, Though I give up my body to be burned, but have not love, I am nothing. You think, how could somebody give himself up to fire for the name of the Lord and it be nothing because ultimately what God is seeking are not grand events of visible seeming reverence but again the quiet the continuous the complete surrendering of our heart and we need to be aware of what it looks like to be lazy toward God That term lazy is not here, but I think the description of its qualities are here. And we just really need to be aware of this. When we're thinking about being lazy toward God, here's what I think we need to see as the qualities involved in that. Being unwilling to act or change or participate when God is calling on you. Being unwilling to act, change, or participate when called on. Notice in verse 13, he called and they would not listen. So I hate to say this, and I I don't mean this in a funny way, although it may be comical, unfortunately. When I was younger um, and a teenager, I was extremely lazy. Um, My parents became very busy when I was younger because of needing to be uh, financially reestablished out of bankruptcy. My mom was going back to college. My dad was working a lot. There was just a lot of struggling within our household. And uh, my parents chose to homeschool me while all of this was going on, my brother and I. And instead of taking responsibility for the greater need for initiative, I chose to learn to procrastinate and put off my work. And I played video games all the time as a substitute for doing my work. Is there anything inherently wrong with video games? There's not. But my mom, when she would catch me playing video games, would get very upset with me. And why? Why would she be so upset at that? because she knew I was neglecting the more important for something worthless. 
She knew that it was a sign that I was unwilling to act on my responsibilities with the priorities I was being called on to fulfill. And the people in the same way, God would call on them and there they are within his land. God is calling on them to act and to change for a reason that they need and they're unwilling to move or listen. And if you look back at verse uh, 11, this laziness leads to either resentment or avoidance of either God and his message or the messengers who are enforcing his message. They refuse to pay attention. They wouldn't listen in verse 12 to the former prophets. They would avoid them, persecute them, kill them, throw them out. So inevitably, if the call is continuously put forward, then those who are unwilling to act on it will either resent or avoid the messengers. And in order to continue to neglect the calling, there either has to be a distorting of the message or a complete forgetting of the message. I want to look at some references in 2 Peter that I think really speak to this very clearly. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. You have to think diligence, the opposite of laziness. How can you command diligence, but that's exactly what God does. Because everything that God has done, the only reasonable response is diligence. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 and 12 through 15. Verse 5, we'll just read a section of this here. God is looking at the magnificence of his promises through Peter's writing in here, the first chapter. And in verse 5 he says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence... Look at verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. And there is a striking parallel between the instruction and the nature of the instruction here and in Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah was not responding with anything new to the people who had a question about the fast, and neither is Peter. Peter isn't putting forward anything new. He's simply reminding them of the glory of what God has done and encouraging them that the appropriate response is diligence. And in verses 5 through 7, Peter, like Zechariah, outlines very personal very intimate applications of practical reform. And what he puts forward is these personal reforms are to be diligently pursued and that is what puts your mind on the hope of glory and God's calling. If you look at the third chapter, verses 14 through 18, he emphasizes this again, just to kind of paint the picture of the importance of diligence. We are called to strive and to apply diligence in other places, to run and to press on. Chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, again, the promise and hope that God is calling us into, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. 
You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So Peter here describes some qualities of people that he wants us to be aware of. In verse 16, who is it that distorts Paul's harder things that he's written? The untaught and unstable. To translate that into the context of this lesson, the spiritually lazy. Who's distorting Paul's message? Is it because it's impossible to understand? No, it's that untaught, people who are unwilling to give their ear to God's word and take the time to learn. And the unstable, too lazy to apply it, unwilling to do it, and so they're unable to understand it. If you look at verse 17, the error of unprincipled men, again, the spiritually lazy, people who are simply unwilling to dig down into that foundation that Jesus clearly commanded is needed. So we're called to be diligent, but why? Because there's a calling in Jesus to glory. It's a diligence motivated, notice verse 18, it's a diligence motivated by association. He isn't just giving empty commands simply to do. What he's commanding is to cling to our association in Jesus. In chapter 1, when he's commanding diligence in pursuit of the reforms listed in chapter 1, it's in view of the association granted by God's power and promises. So if we believe God's warnings about associating with the world, with sin, we will not be spiritually lazy. If you turn in your Bibles back to Zechariah chapter 7, in verse 14, he reaffirms a warning. The reason why they were scattered away was not because of the building of the temple. It wasn't because of the city of Jerusalem. It was the intoleration that God, God could not tolerate their sin within the land, and they left it desolate. Their association with sin had consequences, and they were to be stirred up to continue to act in faith based on that. But also if we believe that God's hope is only in Jesus, and if we see the glory of that hope, we will be diligent in seeking him and wanting to become like him. So in chapter 8, God is not just going to leave them here. There is a very important balance in God's response. He doesn't just leave them warned. He then works to build them up and reassure them. So let's look at chapter 8 and how reform leads to renewal and regeneration. God is not dealing with their fathers. God is dealing with people who had come back because they were listening to his message. God was dealing with people who wanted to know about what to do with this fast because they cared about God and they cared about their condition with God. And their listening to God has set them apart from their past and God now can renew and regenerate them. Let's start with chapter 8, verses 1 through 16. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnants of this people in those days, uh, will it also be too difficult in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who are listening in these days to these words from the mouth of the prophets, those who spoke in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid to the end that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for animal. For him who went out or came in, there was no peace because of his enemies. And I set all men one against another. But now I will not treat the remnants of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce and the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. It will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, that you may become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I have purposed to do harm to you, when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented. So I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. Do not fear. So before getting into these, these points, why does God say do not fear so many times? Do you remember the parable of the talents that were distributed by a master of many servants? Uh, to one was given five, to one was given only a few, and to one was given one. And while those who had many had brought back a profit in their master's absence, when he had returned to the one who had the one talent, he had hid it away and brought it back to his master because he was afraid of his master. He said, I knew you to be an exacting man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering which you had not scattered. And I was afraid of you, so I went and hid your money, and here it is, you have what was yours. And as is the theme of the lesson, the master rebukes the servant and says, you wicked and lazy servant. The issue is not the master. The issue was the heart of the servant. God is not trying to just frighten the people and intimidate them into action. There is a fear that will help motivate and ground them on his promises, but what God is seeking to do is equip them to be comforted, to be assured, and to be confident that he is seeking to bless them. And a, a big focus here that has encouraged me so much in my life is God making it clear that he can turn the curse of their condition that has been brought on by their past sin. God can turn their condition and the curse of that condition into an incredible blessing. Look at verse 13. You were a curse among the nations, but now I will save you that you may become a blessing. This is a truly new beginning. They were not defined by their past any longer. They were not defined by the sins of their past. 
They are not defined by the consequences of those sins. They are now defined by God's power, his passion, his promises. And in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 3 and 6 and 11 through 13, ancient promises God had made, beginning with the time of Moses, God promised that he would bless them in exactly the ways, nearly direct quotations of Leviticus 26, where God says, if you do this, if you just listen to me, I will bless you. And God is willing to renew these ancient promises and assure them, you can go ahead and hang your hat on these promises because I'm renewing them and I will fulfill them. You think about how relatable this is. The time of Moses was nearly a millennium before these events. You know, these promises that God made should be long forgotten collecting dust in some cave somewhere. But God says, because these promises were made by him and his eternal nature and relationship with his people, they are as true in that generation as they ever were. When we're reading the New Testament scriptures, when we're reading about Jesus' life, we are reading ancient promises. Jesus lived longer before our lives than Moses before Zechariah. But because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, we in the same way can be defined by God's promises more than we're defined by our past. But their past was a valuable, relatable, necessary warning. So if you look back in verse 10, there was no wage for man or animal. There was no peace. In verse 13, they had been a curse among the nations. So God doesn't just want them to throw away their past necessarily. Just as in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, we were dead in our sins when we lived in our transgressions. It's not just that we completely forget the lesson in where we once were. Those are valuable warnings. But it's that we do not allow those things to define us when God is seeking in his zeal to redefine, renew, and regenerate our lives. So here's a point of application. If God was willing to restore Jerusalem, a city that had instigated his wrath for hundreds of years... He's willing to restore our lives. If God could fulfill his promises with a people so stubborn and so rebellious and lazy, and if God could change them and motivate them, he can change and motivate us as well. If God is willing to change his mind and make clear that his intentions have changed, then we can count on the fact that when we come to God, although we were living in his wrath, when we are in Christ, his intentions have permanently changed. God is seeking to bless them and his jealousy is to fulfill the positive promise that he had always been seeking to make. Let's look at 17 through 23. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 16 through 23. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against another, and do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months, and these are the fasts we had mentioned before, 
will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples will come. Even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Verse 16 and 17. Are those understandable applications? The visions in Zechariah, which there's going to be some more visions that have some complicated imagery. Those visions and the ones we've already, already read, the point of those visions is not to distract us from these applications. The point of those visions isn't to demotivate us from living in a godly way. Those visions and their context are meant to reinforce these applications and their simplicity. These visions in Zechariah are meant to strengthen and motivate these applications. And so in verse 16 and 17, God is giving the people their role. Again, we've talked about before, we look too much at our own works. We give too much credit to what we must do and not enough credit to what God is doing. The visions that are illustrated throughout Zechariah are meant to be windows into the glory of God's powerful working among his people. But when God speaks to the people and their responsibility, he is crystal clear. Verse 16, speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace. Don't devise evil in your heart against each other. And don't love perjury, which is false oaths, deceitful oaths. We can understand those things. We can do those things. Look, God promises what sounds impossible. He promises what sounds impossible. You see that in verse 6. He's saying things that just it seems like it's too difficult. How is this going to happen? God promises what seems impossible, but he commands what is very possible, what is within reach. And so even though God promises extraordinary things, he calls us to make very simple applications. These are simply quiet, interactive things that on a daily basis as they're going to work, as they're among their own families, and as they're interacting with other people in the nation, these are all things that they can apply on a daily basis. Seeing how God loves me, him being my neighbor first, how God in heaven condescends and humbles himself to come to me, how God loves me and equips me, how God comforts and reassures me and cares for me, how God is jealous not just for his people at large, but for me, even among his people. If I see how God is loving me as his neighbor, I'm equipped then to love others. These instructions in verse 16, I think it's no accident that it is surrounded by a flood of promises and a flood of promises of reassurance. 
because God is acting as a, as a neighbor to his people in the most individual and intimate way. Acts chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. We'll conclude the lesson here. The final promise of Zechariah 8 is that 10 men from all these different nations are going to be so eager to be with the Lord and find him that they're going to grasp the garments of a Jew desperately and saying, let us come with you. We've heard God is with you. Amazing thing with Acts chapter 3, verses 18 through 21 these very vivid things that God is saying, these extraordinary promises that he's making, these are the most important, they're the most incredible, they're the most valuable things that have ever been promised or promised that could be done in all existence. And they've been achieved and completely done. The floodgates are opened. Look at Acts chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away and in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time ancient promises thus fulfilled. The most important, the most incredible, the most valuable achievement in all existence. We literally just read words penned by God himself testifying that he's opened the floodgates of his promises and whoever wants to drink can freely come. Why, oh why would we wait? If you want to come and drink the waters of regeneration and renewal that God has provided through the death of his son and his resurrection, I would implore you to consider the glory of God's achievement and what he's made available while we come and stand and sing our imitation song.